We're going to start a brand new series in the book of Ephesians. Yeah, yeah, we've, we've never preached through this book at all in all of our eight or nine years of being a church. Um, and we often try to enjoy a bit of a meaty uh, expository series through the autumn, trying to work uh, through a book. Um, it's short. But only six chapters, but it really does punch above its weight. Um, it's, uh, it's an extraordinary book if you're not used to reading the Bible. It may be one of those books that you read and you think, man, you read a couple of sentences and that's kind of enough. Because you've got to think through, what did I just read? What did that mean? Because it it, it's been suggested by some that it is the most majestic uh, piece of literature ever written. So even, even you know, the, those people who love Romans and these other writings of Paul will say that Ephesians is just, in terms of just the, the, the majesty of how it describes things, it's, it's above anything else um, you will come across. So it's an extraordinary um, bit of literature. Um, gives us an incredible blend of, um, of, of high, majestic doctrine, but also real practical, uh, gospel-centred application uh, for life. Very nitty gritty. We'll look at home, work, parents, children, husbands, wives, stealing, anger, sexual purity. That's all in there, um, as well as this really, really big, rich um, doctrine. Um, we will probably spend, our, our plan is to spend quite a long time on it. Maybe, well, probably at the moment we imagine that we'll go through to next year uh, still looking at it, maybe up to Easter. So not to rush through it. Um, if it gets a bit, if we get a bit, sometimes if you stay in, the, in a series too long, it can, so it can feel that you, you suddenly you're, you're in a bit of treacle. Um, that's nothing to do with scripture. That's just to do with the fact that we're, we're people, we're frail, we, we sometimes we're helped with a bit of variety. It's a very varied book, so it may not feel like that. But if We'll, we'll keep looking and we'll keep reviewing um, as we go through. Just to say, I'm not going to give you a big history on how the church in Ephesus started and what Ephesus was like. Often if we uh, did a book that was uh, written to a certain location, we might spend the whole or a big, a big chunk of the first sermon looking at what that place was like. When we did Corinthians, we talked about Corinth, what it was like, the con- why, to help us understand the context of the letter. Now the reason I'm not going to do that uh, in Ephesus, with Ephesians is this, is that in, in, in the ancient copies of this letter that survive today um, the, those two words there where it says to the saints who are in Ephesus those two words aren't in the most ancient and reliable manuscripts and if you go back and if you read the, the early church fathers it seems that some of the real big hitters um, said that the manuscripts in their time um, never had this in it So it, and, and the way the letter is written for Paul there's a lot less personal interaction than you're used to so sometimes in his letter he'll speak to some people and say can you stop arguing or he'll say something like about that question you asked here's the answer or he'll give very in-depth personal greetings you really find very little of that a couple of sentences throughout the letter but actually it reads much more like a circular it reads much more like the kind of letter that could be sent to Camden, Revelation, and we read it, and it's not so personal, you know, that it's all about us or not all about us, but it's about, it's about the big truths that are true for every church to read at all time. It's not highly contextualised. It's, it's very general in, its, in the way it comes across. It's not highly charged emotionally either, as if, like in Galatians, where Paul's got to really challenge some things. It's, it's a very emotional book. It's not like that. It's the kind of book that could be read here, then you take it to another church congregation and read it there and it feels just as relevant to them 
And so there were numbers of different theories about originally who it was written uh, for, um, but one of them is, is, is that it was written to the churches in Asia. Um, if in the book of Revelation we find these seven churches in Asia that were ri- written to, then it may have been something similar like that. So in, because of that, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the context of Ephesus. I would, still, I would say this to you though, that it's the ruins of Ephesus exist today. I've been there and they're magnificent. So if you're ever in Turkey, try and get to Ephesus. It's extraordinary. You can find the amphitheatre where, where Paul was dragged out from. It's still there. I mean, it's just, it's really, really wonderfully preserved. But you still, obviously, it doesn't feel modern. If you feel very, you know, uh, but the, the, the guides that show you around are so brilliantly um, articulate and, and so knowledgeable. It really is worth a visit. But that's, I'm not going to say any really, uh, any more on that. If you, want to, if you do want to find out about how the church was established in Ephesus, read Acts chapters 18, 19 and 20. And then you can find a bit more about that, how that church was getting on in Revelation chapter 2. Um, we're going to be looking at this letter under, under these headings. So we're going to spend a few weeks on the fact that we are rich in Christ. A few weeks or maybe months on Jesus and his church. A few weeks or months on walking the walk. And a few weeks or months on life in the spirit. Um, and we trust that we're being true to the main themes that are coming through there. Um, what I want to do today is give you an overview of the book and just really uh, help us to have a, a broad sense of the big things that it's saying, that it's wanting us to know what Paul, what's really on Paul's heart as he wrote this or dictated it, um, and then trust that we will be suitably inspired and encouraged and really ready to engage with this book over the coming months. Is that okay? Great. Okay, so the first thing uh, is this idea of the, the book is looking at salvation from the vantage point of heaven. So you can look at sal- salvation in, from different perspectives. So, for example, if you said to me, Steph, how did you get saved? I could say, I called on the name of Jesus, and, he's, and, he, and, and, and from that point on, my life was different. And what I'm talking about there, I'm talking about salvation from, quite, from an earthly vantage point. What I did and what happened to me. Whereas Ephesians doesn't do that so much. It looks at salvation from a heavenly vantage point, what God did. And it talks about as a result of what God did, what happened to us. But it really nails down these foundations that salvation belongs to God. That salvation is fundamentally an act of God. um, and And it draws us into this majestic big picture. It really does lift us um, out of uh, the doldrums. There's this phrase, in the heavenly places, used five times in this letter. You'll find that particular phrase nowhere else in the New Testament. In the heavenly places, the unseen realm, the eternal realm, which absolutely exists now and will come together, that realm will come together with the new earth at the end when God makes all things new. There'll be this joining together of heaven and of earth. And Paul speaks of this realm in the present tense. He wants us to know about what's happened and what is happening in the heavenly places now. And as a result, as you read it, your eyes go up. You're, you're lifted from your, often the things that are occupying our minds. And so there's, I'll just show you quickly how, how, how this term is used in a few ways. In 1 verse 3 it says that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. So to be saved in Christ means that you are blessed in him with every blessing in the heavenly places. Well, what does that mean? It means this. It means that the blessings we receive from coming to know Jesus come to us most directly in the unseen realm. So, for example, it's not primarily in the area of finance or the area of circumstances or the area of housing 
for example. That is not primarily the way we are directly blessed through coming to know Christ. Now those areas of our life will be massively impacted through coming to know Christ. Every area is. But the direct blessing that comes in salvation hits on the unseen realm primarily. It operates directly into realms like you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's kind of macro stuff, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that, that somehow through being joined to Jesus, what comes with that is God's determination and ability to conform you to the image of his son. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. What he has started, he will complete. Or forgiveness of sins. That every, every dark deed, every shameful thing that all of us are so aware, so aware of, if we've had our eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, of what we are by nature and what we can very easily fall into. All of those things, through the blood of Jesus, totally forgiven. It's unseen stuff. But boy, does it impact on your conscience and on your life when you're able to receive that. Adoption into the family of God. This is the kind of blessing that we get as a Christian. We're kept from that smug, self-satisfied use of the word, oh yeah, I'm blessed. You know, it's used like that now, isn't it? You know, people have an album called, like, called Blessed, basically saying I'm a really good singer or whatever. No, that is not what the Bible is talking about. Uh, that, that, no, no, no. It's this, it's, it, it, it's this, the impact is, is that you become an amazed and hopefully a humble person. You realise God has come to one as undeserving as me and has adopted me into his family and forgiven me all my sins as a gift. Wow. So you, you say, yeah, blessed, but it's from a very different posture of just thinking that you're really something in and of yourself. For in 1 verse 20, it says that, that Jesus Christ has been raised up to the highest place in the heavenly places. Now, we don't yet see him exalted in the seen realm, in this sense. In fact, many people are confused by these things that Christians believe, that Jesus is Lord. Say, look at the world, look at the nations, look at the turmoil. How can you say Jesus is Lord? So in that sense, in the seen realm, we don't yet see it. In the unseen realm, in the heavenly places, you can be sure and you can be certain that Jesus has the highest place. He has all authority. He completely rules everyone and everything knows it. He has been exalted by the Father and given the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. In the earth, above the earth and under the earth. In this age and in the age to come. Undisputed. Undisputed. But it's in the heavenly places. It's in the unseen realm. Extraordinarily in 2 verse 6 it says that we the church have been raised with him. And are seated with him in the heavenly places. Now it starts to get a little bit freaky. We can all go, okay, right, so he's exalted there in the highest place. Wow, what must it be like? Uh, well, like being a Christian. Because God in his mercy has not just forgiven us. And not just let us be servants, that would have been amazing enough. But he has, he has brought us in Christ to the place where Christ is and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's where we are. It's where we exist. It's, it's in a sense, uh, we exist in the seen realm, but at the same time we exist in the unseen realm. And in the unseen realm, in the heavenly places, we are enthroned with Christ as Christians. Right now. This is here. This is now. This is present tense. It will be fully realised in the future, but it's present tense right now. And as we see that, we can be enabled to live detached from a paralyzing fixation with what is my station in this age? 
how high up the pecking order am I? How high up the ladder am I? We are freed from that. In the same way that it says in the, in the Gospels that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, right? Knowing the Father had given him all things, he took off his robe, uh, wrapped the, the towel around him and washed his disciples' feet. How could he do that while he knew the Father had given him all things? When you know you're enthroned with Christ, you haven't got to keep pushing for position. You haven't got to keep fighting your way to the front or showing that you're the one. No, you've exalted with Christ. You can't get any higher than that. You can get on and serve. You can get on and happily be last of all if necessary. It's the gospel. It's what it does. In 3 verse 10 it says that the coming together of the church in unity, Jew and Gentile together in unity under Christ, speaks of God's wisdom to the powers in the heavenly places. The demonic rulers and authorities, the angelic rulers and authorities look on and go, oh my goodness, can you see what they're doing? They are doing what no humans can do. They're living together. And they're not just putting up with each other, they love each other. This is extraordinary. There's that kind of impact in the unseen realm when Jew and Gentile and every other division that you could name come together under Christ. It's extraordinarily powerful. It's a really powerful thing and it's, it's important that we, that we grasp it. It's not our philosophical knowledge or debating skills or academic accomplishments that make the heavenly rulers go, wow! It's that we love one another. And that we are willing to let walls go down, unnecessary walls go down, and find each other in Christ. And then the final time it's used is in 6 verse 12, where it says that the true realm of our warfare is in the heavenly places. So Christians should be absolutely engaged in warfare, but it's not against people. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the authorities. It's against the, it's against the, 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 the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a fight to be fought there where we take our stand and we, and we, we stand our ground in the truths of the gospel and we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and we engage wholeheartedly in warfare for the kingdom. So what we were doing there is we're singing and praying, show your power. What we are doing is as the church, as those seated in heavenly places with authority, we are crying out with, with the heart of Jesus behind us, show your power. It's warfare. Even though the music sounded nice. It's warfare. It's a certain kind of warfare. It's a spiritual warfare where you engage in the heavenly places and you don't somehow see that as a bit of a tangent, a bit marginal. The Bible says the things that are unseen are eternal. Things that are seen are temporary. Both are real. And both are good. Part of God's creation. But one is eternal, the unseen. So that we engage with this unseen realm, heavenly places is huge through this series. That's really important. And then just look at a few more things that are big deals in Ephesians. Next one is, is that God is actively and effectively and ultimately sovereign. There's this phrase in Ephesians 1 verse 11. It talks about God as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1 verse 11. God works all things according to the counsel or purpose of his will. That's an extraordinary statement. That's a really big statement. You won't find, I don't know that you'll find a more extraordinary statement about the sovereignty of God in the whole of the Bible. He works all things and that Greek word all, do you know what it means? All. Right? It's all things. Okay? It's everything. There's nothing outside of its scope. There's nothing you can say, yeah, but that was so bad or so difficult or so dark or so painful that God could ever somehow weave that into his purpose. All things. We've got to face this. 
Because either it's just the nice things, or it's all things. And if it's all things, then there's some things to come to terms with there, and perhaps in our own mind and in our own heart. That he somehow has the, I don't even know what the word is, the ability, I guess, the sovereignty, to be able to gather everything together to work for his final and glorious purpose. See, this should keep us from anxiety. I will say this, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, and you're not anxious, something is probably wrong with you. I mean, when you we just look around at, at the world, at what we're doing to each other, at the turmoil of the nations, at the hatred, at the, at the division, if you look, look at even just looking at the planet, the way we treat that, looking at the amount of animals even that are becoming extinct. I mean, everything from the really high, you know, what we're doing to one another, through to glorious things, part of God's creation that just seem to be dropping off the radar. If you're not anxious, then you're either selfish. You basically think, well, if it doesn't touch me, I'm not bothered. I've still got my little bubble of a life. Or you're burying your head in the sand. Or, or, or you are confident that somehow, even in this, though you feel the pain of it, though you pray, though it touches you, there is an underlying peace that there is one who is working all things according to the counsel of his purpose. This is really, really important. It's really, really important that we that we face this and that we and that we are benefited uh, by it. Ephesians one eleven places the Lord firmly at the centre of everything. Um, but not in a way that should lead us to passivity, but in a way that should lead us to confident action. I want to ask you, do you believe in this sovereign God? If not, then what is your hope in for your life? What is it in? Is it in your loved ones? What is your, what, what is, what, what are you, what are you, comf- why, on what grounds then do you have to be confident about the future, the next generation, the planet, if you're not confident in the sovereign God? What will do it? Will chanting do it? Will positive energy do it? What's going to do it? What's going to make things better? I want to ask you to face it. I want to ask you to face the question. What's going to make things better? What's going to bring about restoration? What's going to bring about healing? What's going to bring about peace? People have been talking about it for centuries. It hasn't come. What is going to do it? If you do believe in this sovereign God, then I want to ask you, do you live in peace? Do you know this peace that comes from knowing the sovereignty of God? If not, why not? What right do you have to be anxious if you believe in this God? I'm talking about gripped by anxiety. We all face anxieties of life, but I'm talking about underlying anxiety. Do you believe in this sovereign God? If you say yes, then what is the impact of that in your heart? Has it reached your heart? Has it reached to the depths of who you are? Can you put your head on your pillow and leave your life and your cause with him who works all things together according to the counsel of his will? This is yours in Christ. Otherwise you're you're, you're essentially trying to be sovereign yourself over your own life. You're trying to work everything according to the counsel of your will. that's, that's, That's tiring. That's exhausting. And it's futile. Because there are factors that are way outside your control. And then you end up in a real knot inside. This is liberating stuff, the sovereignty of God. It really is. So that you're, we're going to delve into this as we come into Ephesians. Time and time again we're faced with the fact that God has absolute freedom to do whatever he wills as and when. And he's doing a good job. We just don't, we just don't understand every detail of what's going on. I definitely admit that. The second thing to say 
is this is that in Ephesians, sorry, the third thing is that God's plan is to bring everything together under his son Jesus. That's what it says. It says this in verse 10. God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So everything is going to be united in Jesus. Um, we all love the idea of coming together, right? Humanity coming together. I don't know about you, I've sung songs in school assemblies, haven't you? You know, what was the one we used to sing? Um, I could sing different ones now. Uh, hold my hand, hold it tight. Hold my hand if you're yellow, black or white. That was our one. And it's, it's, it's this... Yeah. So the, what the dream is, it's the nations... It's the nations coming together as one. It's kind of, it's kind of redemptive and, 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 and quite glorious. But it's also pseudo-redemptive and a bit sad. Why? Because no one's asking the question, what are we coming together under? Or, we, or it's a general kind of, we're coming together as humans under, under, under humanity. And the Bible says it is God's purpose to unite all things under Christ. That's where creation is going. That's the destiny of creation. Nothing else will do. God will not be behind anything else. No matter how nice, no matter how colourful, um, no matter how good the music is. He's got a plan, and it is, his plan is he has exalted, he has established his king on his holy hill. It's Jesus. And there's something in humanity that hates that. It doesn't want that. Right from Eden. We don't want that. We want to do our own thing. But it doesn't work. The reason why we're in the state we're in is because we've gone our own way. And yet this Jesus, is, he, is, he is the king beyond your wildest dreams. He's absolutely perfect in every way. You couldn't wish for a better king. I mean, all the things that we struggle with in rulers, you know, hypocrisy, there's not an ounce of it in him. There's not an ounce of it in him. Um, kind of aloofness, there's not an ounce of it in him. He, he has an eye to the most needy, the most desperate, the most marginalised. Weakness, that we despise that in rulers, there's not an ounce of it in him. He's pure, mighty strength, and yet willingly gave up his life. I mean, he's just glorious king. Everything you could hope for. Everything you could long for. Why do we resist him like we do? But God has established his king Jesus, his son, and that is where this thing is going. That is God's purpose. You think, well, how can that happen? How can God do? How can God bring up a whole? How can God make this thing come about? Grace, <laughs> grace, undeserved, outrageous favor towards us in Jesus. That that is, you're going to hear that a lot in, in Ephesians. Lavish grace. It's this word abounding grace. This word abounding is such a wonderful word because it basically means unnecessary. It's like excessive. You know, you know, you know, you know when things in life are excessive or people. Oh, excessive. I've probably been accused of that a few times. You know, it's like, oh, it's just so excessive, so over the top. That's, that's the word used to describe God's grace in the Bible. It's totally unnecessary. It's like, why did you need to do that, God? You could have just forgiven us, and then we could be like your minions. <laughs> Not those sorts of minions, you know, hum, you know the old use of the word. Um, I'll be Bob. Uh, and uh, yeah, we just serve you. And it'll all be fine, and we'll be happy because we'll be forgiven, and we'll be able to experience a new heavens and a new earth. And God says, you know what, why don't, no, why don't we instead, I've got an idea, why don't we draw you into the eternal life of the Trinity? 
Why don't we do that? Why don't we? We've got this communion, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, been going on forever, totally perfect harmony. We know how to love. We know how to do things. We're just perfectly loving each other the whole time. Tell you what, let's open it up to people. Would you do that? Would you? Have you ever been in a really good scene in terms of company, and then someone else potentially was getting involved? But it was a really great scene. It was a great dynamic, and every everything in you thought, "Oh no." Not that even there's anything wrong with this person, but they could just, this thing's so precious. Anyone experienced that before? Okay, Trinity. Right? It's a good scene. It's utterly beyond our wildest dreams in terms of relationship and glory and honour. Uh, I mean, every, there's, not, there's not a need in sight. But even so, there's just pure love and honouring and putting of one another first. I mean, this is just stunning. And God's plan is to open this life, this family up to us. Invite us in to know him. I don't even know what to do with that. Or I wish I could say some more amazing things about that. This is shocking. It's absolutely shocking. It's the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. Forgiven, adopted, welcomed in and to become friends of God. That's what God's doing. That is what God is doing. don't know why God would do it, what's in his heart other than perfect love. Perfect love is the only answer it could be. So I'll just, I just want to ask, who were you gathered under? Who is your head? Who is your head? Where is your hope? Where, what, what are you gathered under? A political party? Some kind of subversive movement of some kind? And if so, what are your grounds for being confident in that? Or maybe you said, no, I've thrown off all that. I'm the free spirit. I'm, it's just me. It's me on the open road. Not under any head. It's just me doing my thing. And I would say to you, why would anyone do such a thing? Why would anyone do that? In, 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 you've been born into such a, such a huge, I mean, a shockingly huge universe that we can't even begin talking about in terms of size. But even this world is, is, is staggeringly macro compared to you. Why, why would you think that somehow you could forge your way through in something so bigger, much bigger and beyond and older and more ancient than yourself and, and find, a, find freedom? It just doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Why would you think you'd have the tools to find your way through? If you're under Jesus, then I want to say this. Are you under Jesus? Are you under him? Are you working out what it means to walk in submission and obedience to him? Or is Jesus just a term to you, a name that might bring a sense of comfort in the storm? Um, I want to ask, are you, are you under him? Because it's not a popular idea to willingly put yourself under, is it? It's not, it's not like people don't talk about this and cheer about this sort of stuff. It's, what, me under? Yes. Will you, are you humbling yourself under his mighty hand so that he can raise you up at the proper time? Are you trusting him? Are you trusting him? With all the fear that that, that, that brings in our hearts at times, with all the, the challenges that that brings, really, when we're actually, even though we know that there are forces beyond our control, sometimes we feel safer if I can just be in the driver's seat. But it's folly when we can trust the one who is sovereign. Well, we be, are you under him? 
These are really important questions. And then just the final thing I want to say, the final thing from Ephesians is this, is understanding that the church is both the most undeserving and yet important organisation of human beings in the entire universe. It says this about Jesus. It talks about Jesus as the one who um, fills all in all. So Jesus fills all in all and describes the church as the fullness of him who fills all in all. Just That's a a Paul's moment. And the Paul moment, he, he tends to pile word, word upon word, and you think, what's he saying? Right, so Jesus Christ fills all in all. That's, that's a description used about Jesus. He fills all in all. He fills all things. Somehow, the whole universe, the Bible says, is upheld by the word of his power. He fills all things with his mighty... The whole of creation throbs with his presence. Okay? He fills all things. And the church is the fullness of him. Because you see, Jesus has voluntarily made himself incomplete without the church. He has said, I, I, I will be your head, but I want you to be my body. So, you know, so that you can fully, so that I can find full expression through you. You see, I, I, there could just be a head here, my head just talking. <laughs> but the fact there's a body here means there's a fuller expression. Yeah? That's the image. The church is the fullness, the full expression of him, Jesus, the head, who fills all in all. That's who we are. If you're the church, if you belong to Jesus, I mean, that's extraordinary. That's, that's the degree to which he has drawn us in to knowing him. I mean, how do you even begin to, to handle that? We've been entrusted with the care for life on planet Earth. It's so appropriate that we were praying as we were earlier. Why? Because we have been entrusted... With the care for life on planet earth. When God made Adam and Eve, he commissioned them on his behalf to express his rule by looking after the planet. Looking after the creatures, looking after one another. In doing so, they would manifest his image. We we blew it by going our own way. God has set up a new humanity under Jesus, no longer under Adam. And all those who come back to God through Jesus are part of that new humanity where they can again work out what it means to take on the glorious responsibility for looking after life on planet Earth. Not nagging people and trying to make people Christians that aren't. It's not that at all. No, no, no. That's not, that's not what that looks like. Okay, But what it looks like is carrying in our heart, God's heart for his planet. It definitely means sharing Jesus. Of course it does. But it means serving like Jesus served. It means praying like Jesus prayed. It means saying, I'm not just about trying to get through. I'm not just about trying to get by. I'm not just about surviving. I have been commissioned by the Lord and I'm practicing for an eternity of, 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 of ruling with him um, by learning now how to take, how to exercise godly, compassionate, gracious authority not over people, but over situations and over forces of evil by showing the likeness of Christ in my life. It's big. It's, it's, who, it's who we are. That's the church. And God knows what he's doing, so he puts his different ones in his body and some have a huge capacity, others a very small capacity. One has this gift, another one has that. But as we all just submit to him, we'll find our place in the body and we can operate in a way that is fruitful. It's not like suddenly everyone has to become like a global world changer. 
Yeah, seriously. For some people to obey the Lord, it means caring for one sick person 24-7 to the glory of God. And they will be just as rewarded and just as commended for the person who shared the gospel in hundreds of nations to millions of people. They've been faithful with what God entrusted them to do. It's about obedience. It's not about impressiveness. It's about obedience. It's really important that we understand this. So I guess I want to ask, what do you think of the church? What are your thoughts about her like? Do you realise? Do you realise that the church is under such copious amounts of grace from God? There is a never-ending fountain of favour coming to the church from the Father through Jesus Christ. Ridiculous, excessive, over-the-top, unnecessary amounts of favour being poured out on us constantly in Christ, available to us. Do you do you know that? Are you part of her? Do you count yourself as a member of Christ and his church? In, in which case, are you willing to say, Lord, give me your heart. Give me your heart for my neighbourhood. Give me your heart for my nation. Give me your heart for the nations. And if all I ever only am able to do is pray, then I will pray with all my heart. It's about saying, I'm in. I want to join. I want to be part of this. All of us, we, I know that we, you know, we want to get into the deep, the deep waters of what God's doing. I know that. We, 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 we want to learn how to grow into maturity and stature. The Bible talks about, we'll get to it in Ephesians 4, it talks about God's desire for, <laughs> for the church to grow to the stature of Christ. In the sense that at the moment, sometimes it's a bit like sort of big head, small body. Or adult head, child's body. And the plan is, is that the church comes to the kind of maturity whereby she matches. There's a match. What an extraordinary... Wow, it's quite a tall order. Because what is Jesus like? Just read the gospel. It's just extraordinary. But there's this... This is the calling on the church. And so, and so the Lord wants to take us on adventure. Wants to help us to grapple with this. And teach us how to play. Our part. So there we go. These are, these are the big things we're going to be delving into in Ephesians over the next few uh, months. Um, the heavenly realm, heavenly places, the sovereignty of God, the destiny of creation under Jesus and the place of the church in heaven, the church in Christ, the church in community, the church in the world. And I guess I just want to finish by saying that the doorway into this glorious truth is a very narrow one. To get into these wide riches that Jesus said that the door, the gate is narrow. There's a narrowness and the way is hard. There's something, it's not just, it's not, well I guess it is come one come all. There is an invitation, a really, a very wide invitation. But the invitation is to come to this one. Jesus of Nazareth. The way, the truth and the life. That there is one. Jesus said that the gate is wide and the road is broad. That leads to destruction. Right? So the message that says, hey, just come your own way. Just come your own way. That's the broad way that leads to destruction. That's what that is. Jesus said that it would be there. It is there. You can find your own way to God. God's cool with your way. Don't, don't get into all that narrow stuff. Well, Jesus said it's narrow. It's him. One person. It's not, it's not create your own Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. As revealed in the Bible, him. But, but through the door, through him, Jesus says that you will find your way into the right flock, the right fold, where you'll find good grass. 
good pasture. You'll be well fed. You'll be like, ah, this is it now. And promises like, I've come to give you life in all its fullness begin to break into your life. But it's a narrow gate. And we want to just call call us all, I guess, freshly um, to that. And even if you think, but actually, for whatever reason at the moment, that just feels tough. And there are definitely seasons as a Christian where you say, at the moment, that, that feels really tough. Um, I still want to just call you to it because it's worth it. It's just worth it. And, uh, and I, I want to call you to it because you won't regret it. You won't regret it. Um, but there, are, there is sometimes some pain involved in it. Jesus invites you to be willing to leave everything and follow him, to bring your sins to the cross and embrace him in his crucified and, and resurrected glory. This is what we do. And then once we're connected to him, everything else flows from that. That's the plan. Um, and I just, my prayer, I guess, through this series is that we learn how to, well, not we learn, by God's grace, we get to become amazed people. Because I'm very aware, we, we had our lead weekend launch last weekend and we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount and all of us have been sort of undone minute by minute. And you just realise, unless I'm living amazed by God's grace over my life, there's no overflow. Do you know what I mean? I, I might be able to be nice to a few people, but loving my enemies, it's not going to happen. Just being honest, it's not going to happen. But it, it, if, I'm, if I'm genuinely amazed by his grace to me, and his love for me, and I'm filled with his spirit, then you know what? Then, then there will, if I'm full, there'll be an overflow, right? And if there's an overflow of his presence out of me, then, then there can be some loving some enemies that starts to happen, and some extraordinary living. Because apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. So he knows it. We might as well just say, yep, <laughs> yep. And then we can come together in agreement and he can fill us with his spirit. So I guess maybe the best thing to do is we have time now to sing for, uh, and praise him for 25 more minutes or so. Is to take the bread and to take the wine and to come to him freshly and say, Lord, I want to be filled with your spirit. Jesus, you said your words are spirit and life. I've been hearing your words today. Oh, just let, let them be spirit and life to me. Fill me to overflowing and let these words go in deep. Let them open up that well that springs out and overflows out so I can be a, so I can be a lover. Not just of those who love me, but of, of, any, you know, of those that, that come across our path. Amen? All right, I'm gonna, why don't we stand and maybe the band could come up. I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll just ask, welcome the Holy Spirit to, to do his work, to apply these things to our heart. Lord Jesus, we just want to say um, that, you know, the more we look at you, the more, the more we, over the years, get to know you, the more we think, I'm so amazed by you and, and so glad that, that more and more aware that you really needed to come and do this mission, not for your sake, but, but for our sake, that there's no way we could have got ourselves out of this mess. And we didn't even want to anyway. We were just happy playing around in the mud. But Lord, you've, you've done it anyway. I mean, the fact that you've, that you've come to us in this grace and loved us in this way. And, and, and even, even now, you know, Lord, when we think of the fact that you've changed this, Lord, how many bits of us we think, oh man, Lord, that still needs so much work. And yet, Lord, you are committed to your people. 
you are so committed to your church. You're not ashamed of us. I mean, it's extraordinary that you wouldn't even be ashamed of us. That publicly you would own us as your people. That you would say, yes, I'm about the church. I love my bride. We just say, you're amazing, Lord. You're so humble. You're so, you, would, you would look much better without us, Lord. You would look so much better without us. And yet you've come to us. And you've made us your own. And we just say, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for not leaving us where we were. Thank you for not just letting us get on with it. Thank you, for, thank you, thank you for having mercy and kindness and love and grace in your heart. And not just to get something started, but to stick with us year in, year out, century in, century out. And insist that your bride will come to maturity. That, that you will get her to the place where she is able to join with you. And it looked like a good match. Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you. And I just pray, Lord, that as we sing and as we draw near in our hearts and as we pray for each other and as we take the bread and the wine, we just pray, Lord, on the grounds of grace and grace alone, that the Holy Spirit would freshly fill us, charge us with power and inspiration and compassion and all the things that we need. We ask you, Spirit of the living God, breathe on us and help us, we pray.